What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Michelle Hansen. Uh, Michelle, you are many things. You are the founder of Geocodio. You're the co-host of the excellent podcast, Software Social. You are the author of a brand new book called Deploy Empathy, which we're going to talk about a lot today. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So why don't we start by talking about Geocodio? Because this is like the most indie hackerish thing that you do. Although every one of these other things is like a very indie hacker thing to do. <laughs> what is Geocodio uh, and, and how did you come to start it? So Geocodio is a software as a service company that my husband and I started together in 2014. So the genesis of it is that we had a little mobile app called What's Open Nearby that at the at the time you you couldn't just like type into Google like which grocery stores are open right now. You had to like remember that like there was a Safeway near you and then like go to the Safeway website and like go to their store locator and like type in your zip code and find the one near you and then find their hours and it was like 5 clicks deep. And so we built this app and said that you just pulled it up and it was a map and it showed you which grocery stores and convenience stores and coffee shops were currently open. So you didn't have to do all of that. And the whole idea of it is if you needed, you know, milk at midnight or a coffee at 3 a.m. and you didn't have the brain power to do all that searching, you could just pull up the app. And so the central point of this app was this map. So for geocoding, which is the process of turning addresses is into latitude and longitude so a computer can understand them so you can for example show a map on a mobile app basically everybody got it from google and they would give you 2500 lookups for free per day but you couldn't cache them or store them and then if you needed any more than that you needed to pay like tens of thousands of dollars a year for an enterprise contract that gave you like a hundred thousand a day and we were like <laughs> well, like we had this app going and we had some ad revenue, like a couple hundred bucks yeah. a month. And it was like, it felt like it was working. And we were adding more and more stores, getting some good press about it. But we had like 3,000 stores at one point. And we're like, hold on. So we, we're 500 over this limit. And there's just nothing. Like we just can't get the data. Like how are we going to keep this going? So we initially built a super rudimentary geocoder just for our own purposes for this app, just to keep it alive. And as we talked to other friends about it, who, who you know, who are developers, they were kind of like, oh, like I have the same problem. And eventually somebody was like, have you guys ever thought of just like slapping a paywall in front of this? And then like maybe other people <laughs> could pay your server costs so that you don't have to like pay to host this. And we're like, yeah, like that would be amazing. Like other people paid the server costs. And so... We launched Geocodio in January of, of 2014. We had two tiny little digital ocean droplets for 10 bucks a month each. So our expenses were basically $20 to keep it going. And to our great surprise, uh, you know, we, we put it up on Hacker News and, and prayed. And then somehow it ended up on the front page the whole day. Tons of signups. Of course, we've never 
come anywhere close to that traffic that we got on the first day. And most of it didn't stick around. But we got some customers out of it. We ended up making about $31 our first month. So about you know, $11 when you take out the <laughs> server costs. We were so surprised that anyone wanted to pay us that we actually had not written the code to tell people to to tell Stripe to bill people. Wow. Uh, yeah, we because re- we did a we did pay as you go for one of our plans. That was the only one we launched with initially. But that to us was a smashing success because we had more than paid our server costs. That was the goal. And that was such a crazy experience, you know, getting so much feedback from people on Hacker News. And that was really where I started to be interested in like the role of customers and building a business. There's so many lessons in that in that story, particularly this this idea that as you're building your first sort of side project or business, you're building tools to help you out. And the fact that these tools that help you out could be useful to other people. You know, this geocoding service that you created for yourself is something that others might need. It's such a cool insight. And I consistently see this pattern of founders who end up pivoting to a business that at first was just a helper for their previous business. It's almost as if the best way to come up with business ideas is to start something, literally anything, and then when you find yourself needing problems solved that are valuable, go do that as a business instead. Yeah, and what I love about that approach is you are already passionate about the problem. And worst case scenario, you have solved the problem for yourself, you have made yourself more efficient, you have an accomplishment you can feel good about, and maybe you know, nobody is paying you, but you have solved your own problem. I think the other thing that I take from your story, which you didn't quite dive into, but you, you hinted at it, was that you are a husband and wife team working on this side project and also working on Geocodio. What do you think is a lesson that you've taken from, I guess, seven plus years of working together for other people who are working together with their partners? Working with my spouse for me is my dream job. In a way, it's a reason why I never plan to get a job again if I can help it because we work so well together that that it that it just works. We both bring unique things to the table. We respect each other professionally and as people so much. And so it works for us. It doesn't work for all couples. And I think whenever the topic of founder couples comes up, there's always at least one person who has a horror story about working for a founder couple that should not have worked together. So it's so funny, like, because I think people self-select into it because I remember, I think, I think I was at MicroConf where this happened, where, you know, just like chatting with, with people and whatnot. And people who don't work with their spouse, who knew that we worked together, uh, would be like, how do you guys work together? Like, we would kill each other. And then the people that do work with their spouse, they would be like, isn't it just the most amazing thing? Like, I'm so happy for you. And it was just this huge dichotomy. Like, there are two reactions to hearing that we work together. Well, it sounds like people have slotted themselves into the right buckets because (laughs) the people who aren't working (laughs) together, the people who know that they would kill each other. Did you and your husband, did you have to do a lot of work or any work to like make it work? Or was it just sort of naturally natural from the very beginning? 
We met at work, working at a pretty small company, and we actually worked together as co-workers for six months without any sort of romantic spark oh, wow. or intentions or anything. Um, You've never not worked together. Yeah. Yeah. We have, since we have known each other, we have worked together. There is no before. That's cool. Yeah. So it's normal to us. Like in... In a way, when Matthias finally went full-time in 2018, I went full-time in 2017, it was like returning to normal. Very cool. Well, obviously, the two of you are doing a great job. I don't know how many employees Geocodio has, but I do know that you're doing north of a million dollars in annual revenue. Uh, you're crushing it, and you've had the time on the side of that to engage in some other side projects. So you, I feel like I need to have you on the show like three times. Like, I want to talk about your <laughs> podcast, Software Social. We don't have time to do that now. I want to talk about the whole story of Geocodio because there's a lot of interesting insights there. But in this episode, I want to talk about your book that you recently just uh, published. It's called Deploy Empathy. I read it. It's great. What's What inspired you to write a book? Though? Why write a book? If you've got a company that's making millions of dollars, if you've got a podcast, if you've got you know a family, you've got all this stuff going for you, why do the arduous, tough task of sitting down and banging out a book that's, uh, I think, well over 330 pages. So there's two directions for that answer. One of them is the where the need came from. And then the other one that, that's a bit simpler, and I think makes it all make more sense, is that I have ADHD. And so doing many things at the same time is like completely normal to me. I actually need to have multiple projects going because that's just makes me excited about things and you know I, I get bored and I want to move on to something else and so having multiple projects going is just super normal for me but where the book came from so for years now I guess I've sort of been sort of on and off having calls with people who are trying to get started with customer research so it's sort of my favorite topic you know my functional expertise is in product management. And my little niche within there is customer research. And at one point, you know, I was one of the leaders of the Washington, D.C. Jobs to be Done meetup, you know, gave some other various talks. I gave a talk at MicroConf about interviewing customers. I guess some some people kind of knew that, that this was my area because most of the writing on customer research with the exception of the mom test, is not written for indie hackers. It's not written for developers. It's not written for people who are getting started on their own without funding. It's written for UX people. It's written for product people. But it, it really wasn't until last fall when I was mentoring a sprint group through Founder Summit, and they were asking me questions about customer research more frequently because I was meeting with them every week and I didn't have one good place to send them with the stuff they needed that I sort of started to be like, maybe I should like do something <laughs> with this. Yeah. So it's interesting because you're, you're sort of experiencing this problem that people have. People clearly find it valuable to get this advice. They clearly have a problem talking to customers, learning what to build, learning how to build it. And then the solution to that problem is shitty. <laughs> it's like you said, it's this piecemeal, you know, collection of breadcrumbs through a bunch of different books and blog posts and sections to ignore and pay attention to. And I think that's like, again, like another perfect formulation for like, aha, business idea, <laughs> validated problem that people actually have. Existing solutions are really crappy for this particular group of people. 
Yeah. And, you know, into what we were talking about, Geocodio and solving your own problem. In many ways, the book came out of solving my own problem. And I had this thought one day that I was like, maybe I should write a book. And and it's like everything I have read from writers makes writing a book sound awful and like really lonely and like they had to go lock themselves in a room for six months and not see other people and have these strict rules for themselves on how many hours they write a day. And and I was like, I I mean, this is mid-February. We're in the middle of a strict lockdown. I did not need any more loneliness in my life. Um, So I was like, I should not write a book. And I was like, but you know what? I could write a newsletter. Like people are doing this like newsletter thing now. Like maybe I could just like start writing stuff as a newsletter as I need it. Like the stuff that I need to be able to send to people. And then the archive of that newsletter, like the next time somebody asks me, hey, how do I do this? I can just send them this newsletter archive and then I don't need to have this conversation over and over again. Right. So it was solving my own problem. Yeah, I think the um, the topic of the book itself, talking to customers, is a challenging topic to get people to care about too. Because having worked with a lot of indie hackers, if I think about the problems that are at the top of their mind, it's it's things like how do I come up with an idea? You know, how do I even know what to build? Right? Like, how do I find the time in my day to even finish like building this product and get it out the door? Like, it's so hard just to like finish it and have something that's releasable. And then like, how do I find customers? Like, nobody's paying for this. Like, I don't have any money. Uh, you know, how do I you know continue making this business work? These are like kind of the biggest pressing problems. And I think. When people hear, oh, you need to, you know, go do customer research and talk to customers and check out this book, Deploy Empathy, and check out this book, The Mom Test. People are like, I don't have time for that. I can barely, I barely have time to do all the other things I'm trying to do. So how do you address that notion? How do you, I guess, contend with the fact that like a lot of founders don't see customer research as something that's worth putting the time into doing? Yeah, you know, there's something I'm very aware of that understanding customers is perceived as a vitamin rather than a painkiller. But what has been really unexpectedly delightful about this process is learning that it's more like a gummy vitamin. Like once people know how to do it, they actually get really excited about it. And I have had people tell me who have been running their own businesses for years and barely spoken to their customers, never mind interview them, that like now they're excited about it after doing it, after uh, reading my stuff, which is really, really exciting. And you know, I sometimes find that the people who are the most against it are the people who tried it, but they went into it without enough guidance. And they went into an interview and they asked someone, you know, is this a good idea? Would you buy it? What should I build next? And then they did that and then the person didn't buy it and they're like, well, that was a waste of time. Like, I'm never doing that again. And I actually, I posted on Indie Hackers a couple months ago when I was writing, like, like, have you found talking to customers to be useful? Because I wanted to understand what people's perceptions of it were, what their experiences were, you know, what those hesitations were. And someone actually like commented on it that they were meeting their potential customers in coffee shops near them. Robert Bialzi, I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering your name, last name, Robert. He's an indie hacker in Romania. And he like commented this whole thing about how he was meeting people for coffee and like getting, you know, understanding their process and all this stuff. And I was like, I need to talk to you because you are exactly in this group of developers who people 
often think are, you know, not going to go out and talk to the customers and don't want to. And you're getting all this out of it and you're doing it and you're like living it. And this is so incredibly exciting. It told me it really was possible to get people excited about this. I, I had so many soul nourishing phone calls with people about their customer research during the process of of writing the book. And that one, that one really stands out. And it just came from a you know, comment thread on indie hackers. Cause I, I think people believe that stereotype that developers are bad at talking to people. And it's just not true. And the research shows that it's not true. Like research actually shows that, you know, engineers were actually better at pulling insights out of a usability session than experts were. And that's a study from 1993. Like this has been known for a very, very <laughs> long time. And yet, People believe that and allow it to, you know, hold back their projects. And then right. they wonder, why isn't anyone buying it? You know, they, they could have talked to people and tweaked yeah. their idea and found that thing that really did make it work. There's all these, these stereotypes that I think society tends to propagate that's really, they're really easy to buy into. And once you just sort of accept them as true, you, you end up succumbing to confirmation bias where you're, you're looking for evidence that these things are true. You're ignoring evidence against it. You know, engineers suck at talking to people. It's like, well, you know, if you think that, you're really going to see the truth of that all over the place. But if you actually look at the data, like you're saying, it's actually not true. That's the case. And I think even worse, if you believe that, you might fall into the trap of like saying, I'm not going to be good at talking to people. Or it's a waste mm -hmm. of time for me to talk to people. But I think given how many people are good at engineering nowadays, how many people can code an app? How many people can build, you know, the sort of fundamental parts of a business that way? I think one of the best differentiators is to get good at talking to people. It is to like develop these soft skills and read books like yours and figure out how to actually talk to customers. And I think that helps you. Like if I was trying to sell somebody on why they should read this book or why they should talk to customers, uh, quite frankly, like the number one problem that indie hackers have is building something that nobody wants. You spend mm -hmm. six months, nine months, 12 months of your life coding this thing that you're super excited about. And at the end of it, like nobody pays for it and it doesn't grow and you're dejected and you quit. And like that sucks. And like a lot of that can be avoided if you're really good at talking to customers, which it doesn't take that much effort to get good at. And I think in your book, you know, like I would expect a book like this to be called like learn how to talk to customers or customer <laughs> conversations or something like that. But it's called deploy empathy. The sort of main theme running through the book are these tactics and techniques to help you become more empathetic and demonstrate empathy in these conversations. Uh, how would you define empathy and, and why is it important to have empathy when talking to customers? Why is that the title, the so important that it's the primary concept of your book? This is such a good question because I think people mix up the definitions of empathy and, and compassion um, and sympathy very often. So the definition of empathy that I use in the book, which is a quote of Brene Brown, is empathy is understanding that somebody else's thoughts and emotions and actions make sense from their perspective. And it's seeking to understand their perspective, appreciating it as valid from their perspective, and that it makes sense from their perspective, even if it is different from your own perspective. And, and it's important to talk about the definition of empathy because there's also sympathy, which is, you know, sort of feeling bad for someone and, and, and compassion. And I, and I think sometimes, and this is some, sometimes people have given me a little bit of pushback here because they define empathy as feeling what the other person is feeling. And 
I don't use that definition. Brene Brown doesn't use that definition either. And I think actually attempting to feel, like truly feel what the other person is feeling is distracting because then you are focusing on your own feeling. And the whole point is to focus on the other person and understand what they are feeling and almost suspend your own judgments and preconceived notions and your own feelings about what they're saying and just completely submerge into the other person. I like to think of it as becoming a sponge or as it's phrased in the book and with the cover, picturing yourself as the rubber duck that is just there to listen to whatever it is they have to say. And this is way, way easier said than done. It is not easy to just sit down, especially if somebody's like describing like an industry you know a lot about, or they're describing using your own product that you spent like years building. Mm-hmm. It's hard to just sit there silently and just try it to is. like empathize with their point of view. And you're like, no, you're doing it wrong. Like you should have yes. this button or you should have done it this way. <laughs> like it's just like hard not to interrupt. But like if you do that, you're sort of taking yourself out of, I guess, effective interviewer mode and you're sort of making it about you. And, uh, and in fact, in your book, you have uh, what you call the most important section of your book. It's section number four. Basically, it's all about how to talk so that others will talk to you. And it's intriguing because like right in the beginning of that section, you say, look, this is going to be a list of tactics and tips. And you need to promise me, reader, that you will not be manipulative. You will not use what people say against them. You will not use this, these tactics to do harm onto others because they can make somebody open up to you much more than people normally would. And I think normally if I see something like this in a book, like that's like kind of like on the cover, you know, or like on the very first page, it's kind of like an, an ad to get people intrigued. But in yours, it's like an actual promise that you want to extract because like the tactics that follow like actually could be pretty manipulative. Like they're very powerful techniques. They're things that therapists do to have very good conversations with people and they're very effective. And so if you're willing, like I want to go through this list, list of techniques because I think they're very fascinating and there's something important to be said about every single one of them. Yeah. And, and you know, on that, it is very important to me that people use these tactics and what they learn from people ethically. And so someone asked me recently about the fear that people might, you know, manipulate it. And I'm a, am I just giving fuel to people who are manipulative? And I, that is a question I have thought about quite a bit over the past few months. Someone pointed out to me that people who are manipulative and who seek to do harm to others, they do not need instructions on how to do that. They instinctively know how to do all of this and so much more and use it in ways as as weapons against people. It's people like us who are a bit more naive, maybe a bit more on the socially awkward side, who actually (laughs) need instructions on like validate what someone is saying and leave a pause for them to, to fill. The, the people who are charming and manipulative don't need to be told how to be charming and manipulative because they have probably known how to be that way since they were children. <laughs> so maybe before we jump into this list, what's the broad sort of the broad strokes of why this list is even important? Because the book's kind of divided into like these these tactics for empathetic conversations and then also these very useful scripts for like, hey, do you have this problem? Are you at this stage in your journey? Here's a script for how to talk to a customer about topic X or topic Y. Why do you need like these soft, empathetic conversational skills before you can just jump into the scripts? Because how you ask the questions and how you treat the other person matters so much for the kind of output that you're going to get and the kind of results you're going to get. You know, the the book has all of these scripts and 
in some ways, I often think about what I, what I, my questions I have to ask someone as the first half of an interview. And, and what you're doing is priming someone to think about the topic. You're building rapport with them. You're showing them that you care, which, you know, for, for many indie hackers, you know, especially if you're building something B2B, you're asking somebody about an everyday business process that nobody in their life has ever cared about. So you're getting them comfortable talking about it and comfortable talking to you. And then in the second half, you use all of that rapport and they open up to you about how they really think about it and what they're really doing. And so the tactics are so important because the questions are really only a small part of building that rapport and asking the questions in a harsh tone of voice or interrupting someone or talking over them or not making them feel comfortable you're not going to get very good results back. You know, I could ask you, what led you to sign up on Indie Hackers today? And you would kind of be like, Ugh. like, and you're like, uh, I don't know. Like, I just uh, wanted to comment on something. Yeah. But if I ask you, so what led you to sign up on Indie Hackers today? You're going to be like, oh, well, you know, like, it's just, it's right. You know, you're trying to be, as I sort of often put it, as harmless as possible. Yep. So the 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 scripts are sort of the what you do, and the tactics are sort of how you do them. Mm-hmm. And you've got a list of, of sort of 12 tactics, and you just use the very first one, which is use a gentle tone of voice, which mm-hmm. I think just from your example, it demonstrates obviously like why I'm going to react very differently to the first <laughs> question than I would to the second. Um, but what are your thoughts on using a gentle tone of voice and a customer interview like how how does this help put customers at ease i guess how does it help you learn more as a person interviewing them you need to speak in a gentle tone of voice in order to put them at ease and to make them feel safe and to show them that whatever they say is is acceptable and you can do that through your your tone of voice and you know, I mentioned in the in the book that a lot of the tactics come from tactics that therapists use and negotiators as well. And speaking in a calm, gentle tone of voice helps the other person calm down. Therapists do this intentionally to bring calm to maybe someone who's agitated. So do negotiators. Yeah. And it's cool because it has that effect on yourself as well. Like if you just try talking in a gentle tone of voice, like you end up calming down yourself. And I guess if you were like new to customer interviews and it's something you haven't done a lot as a founder, you might be a little amped up, a little nervous, a little shaky. And so if you can calm yourself down, you can calm them down. I think that sounds great. And if it's good enough for like someone who's like a hostage crisis negotiator, then I think it's probably good enough for founders. Yeah. And, you know, for those first couple of interviews, if you notice that you're shaky and you're excited and you're talking over them and you're not following these tactics, it's okay. But what's important about that is that you noticed you were doing that and that gives you the opportunity to improve on it the next time. It takes time to understand how to use these tactics and use all of them in an interview. But starting to notice where you're not using them is so powerful. And that in and of itself is a sign of growth. And it doesn't mean you're doing this process wrong. It doesn't mean you're learning it wrong if you find yourself accidentally not speaking in a gentle tone of voice. It's okay. You can do it the next time. So the second tactic is, I think, my favorite. It seems like, I don't, I don't know if you would agree, but it seems to me like one of the most powerful tactics on the list, and it's just the word validate. Validate what people are saying. What does that mean? 
So we talked about the definition of empathy and how it, it you know, it, it, in some ways it means simply acknowledging that what the other person thinks and does make sense from their perspective. And you can make that known by when they say something to you, simply replying with, yeah, that makes sense. And that is a profoundly powerful phrase because it gives them permission to keep sharing. It's super, it's super unintuitive because it's, it's like, okay, well, why would you need to tell somebody that what they said makes sense? <laughs> of course they think it makes sense. Like they just said it. You know, what, what possible help can it be for you to sort of tell them something that they already know? It's all about building that environment of safety and calm and where you're putting them in control. And, and you're also elevating them in many ways to the position of teacher. So, you know, you, you were saying earlier about interviewing people about an industry or a problem that you're very familiar with. Saying, you know, I'd like to understand how this works from your perspective. And then you're elevating to them to that teacher position. It's one of the most powerful ways to influence someone as found by the marketing researcher, uh, Robert Cialdini. He found that when he, he, for research for his own book, Influence. One of my favorite books yes. in the world, by the way. I love that book. So he did a podcast with, I want to say it was Freakonomics Radio a couple of months ago. And he was saying how he embedded himself into all of these companies with really spammy marketing, basically. So at the time it was, you know, encyclopedia salesmen and like used car dealerships, and like all those sorts of things. And he would be a trainee in their programs. And then he wanted to use that for his research for his book. And when he asked people, you know, told he outed himself and said he was actually a professor and he wanted to use this in his book. And he asked them if if he could use it, if he gave them a copy of the book, only about half of them said yes. But when he said, he's like, well, you know, I'm a professor of marketing, but I wanted to come learn from you because you are an expert in how to influence people. A hundred percent of them said yes. And so these tactics of validating what they're saying and basically elevating them to the position of teacher, even if you are the founder of the company, even if you have decades of experience in something, it makes them feel complimented. It makes them feel like they have something to say. It makes them feel like what they're saying is important, which if you are building a company and this person is representative of the customers that you might have for that company or you or is a customer of your company, it is incredibly valuable to make them feel valuable themselves. Yeah. And in your, in your chapter about validation, you talk about something I think that is, is fascinating, which is not only do you use validation when you don't necessarily agree with what the other person is saying, <laughs> even if it sounds absurd to you, you're not agreeing with them. In fact, yeah. you're, you're going out of your way not to give any opinions at all. You're not saying Correct. like that's good or that's bad, or, you know, or like that or I don't like that. Like you're, you're attempting to become almost inhuman, like this object in the room with them that d isn't even capable of having opinions or judgments. Yes. And so all of these validating phrases you're, are like, are like, I can see why you do it that way, Michelle, or I can see what you're saying, or it sounds like that's frustrating, or it makes sense that you think that. None of these are opinions. <laughs> None of these are judgments. But they are also profoundly validating at the same time. Right. Why is it important to not have opinions? Why is it important to not give judgments? So on the flip side of talking about putting them in the position of teacher, it's also very important that they don't start trying to impress you because then they will start holding things back and they will start trying to craft a narrative around why they do things and make themselves look good. 
And if you were to say, yeah, I love that idea when they share a feature request with you, they're going to then feel like, oh, like she thinks my idea is good. Like, what does she think of my other ideas? Like, if I say something else, I want her to think that's good. Like, you're reminding them of their own insecurities. But instead, if they request a feature and you say, can you tell me more about how you might use that? You're just diving deeper into what they think, how they see things, and you're leaving those opinions and the quality of what they're saying completely to the side. It's it's irrelevant. You're just looking to understand their perspective, looking through their mental closet and, you know, asking permission to open up all of the drawers. I love that. It's like this idea that if you are someone who's capable of giving opinions and making judgments, then as you said, like you trigger something in them to be like, oh, this is a person that I need to impress. And that's the last thing that you want in a customer interview. You don't want somebody saying things that aren't necessarily true. You want somebody Mm -hmm. giving you the most accurate possible sort of, I guess, revelation of their experience. And it's a really hard one for people to learn because socially we are often conditioned to be agreeable, to build rapport with people. But in this case, it's actually detrimental. Right. And it's hard to go into customer interviews and like not sort of already know what you want them to say. You know, like if if you were a new founder, you've been working on your baby for, you know, a while and you go talk to a customer about it, like it's probably kind of scary to know that they might say bad things about it. They might not need what you're building. They might not have ever bought something like that before. And so it's easy to sort of gradually, subtly coax them into saying good things. I think this is true for anything. Like even if like, I don't know, let's say you're going to fight with your partner and you want to go talk to a therapist, right? It's easy to like give your therapist a very biased version of what your of what the situation is because you want them to agree with you. Or if you're interviewing customers, it's easy to talk up your product and, you know, subtly without saying it explicitly, you know, put them into a situation or a mood where they feel like they need to say good things about your product. And then you can sort of trick yourself into walking away from that conversation thinking, oh, yeah, people like what I'm doing. I should keep doing what I'm doing when it really you sort of manipulated them into saying good things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very natural instinct to want to hear positive things about what you're building and doing, especially when you need motivation and you're going on your own. That's that's very normal. A customer interview can surface a lot of things about how you're helping someone. Rarely will it come in the form of, I love you, this product is amazing. Like, It's not going to come to you like a testimonial, but it will come to you in hearing wow, like this thing they're doing, like it took them like so much time before and now it just took them 15 minutes to get it set up and they don't even think about it and they're super grateful to me for that. Like, wow, like it's really different, but we have to check our own instincts to be praised and feel good about ourselves. And, you know, to what you were saying earlier about, This isn't just about customer interviews. It's about all of these complicated human emotions and how do we handle them. It's important to have empathy for your customer and it's also important to have empathy for yourself. And if you find yourself in an interview looking for praise and looking for validation rather than evaluating an idea, but trying to validate it, understanding that your desire to feel good about what you're doing is completely normal and it's Mm. natural and it's okay. Have empathy for yourself as well. You have another point in this list that you called mirror and summarize their words. What does that mean in the context of a customer research interview? 
So that's to rephrase what they have just said. Again, you know, without any opinions. And there are two different ways of mirroring and summarizing. And basically what this does is it, it prompts someone to keep talking, but is not actually a question. So for example, so before, before we started recording, you started talking to me about how you're buying furniture for your apartment and you, you, but you just bought a chair. So I could ask you, how did you decide to buy that chair? Or I could say, oh, so you just bought that chair. Right. Even after I just told you that I bought the chair, you just kind of correct. Tell me, and then I tell me what I told you, you back to you that you just bought the chair, and then you and then you'd probably be like, "Yeah." So then my friend, like they're kind of you know like right. It's a way to prompt elaboration, but is less threatening than a question. Going back to that whole thing theme of being as harmless as possible. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think sometimes in conversation it's it's easy to feel like, especially if you're like you know almost excessively polite that you need to shut up <laughs> and that like, okay, I said the thing, I answered the question, that's all I'm gonna say. And if you sort of repeat back to me what I said, then like you're giving me permission to just go on and elaborate and tell you much more about whatever it is I was talking about. And the other way to do this is to summarize what they said wrong. So for example, let's say that you told me that you bought an end table last week and you bought a chair today. And if I was trying to elicit elaboration, what I could do is prompt you to correct me and then elaborate on top of that. So I could say, oh, so you bought a chair last week and then you bought an end table today. Same tone of voice, same way. But then you would say, no, it was actually the chair that I bought today because last week I bought the end table because I was at this store and they were having a sale. And like, mm -hmm. and then you start going into it because you're correcting me and giving me more details so I understand. Right, right. That's super smart. And all these things, I mean, validation, mirroring and summarizing. We've got another one on here, which is asking for clarification even when you don't need it. <laughs> Seem to be like methods of just getting the person to not only feel safe, but to get them to just keep talking and giving you more and more details. Why do you need so many details? Why does it matter that they keep talking and sharing more and more about their experience with you? Because it's important you understand the problem from their perspective. We always have a sense of a problem from our own perspective, but if we wanna build something that solves a problem for somebody else and is, is also intuitive for them and solves the problem in the way that they would understand and that they can interact with it and they're able to implement it. We need to fully understand their perspective even when you think something is obvious. And just and I see this time and time again with Geocodia where I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know why they need this, but let me just ask anyway. And then I ask and then I'm like, oh, that was not at all <laughs> what I was thinking. I'm so glad I asked that. Um, and so the more you you do that and you ask people things that that feel to you like dumb questions, like th again, I feel like we're socially conditioned to not ask dumb questions. And we're so afraid of that. And we're so afraid of the shame that comes with someone saying, well, that was a dumb question. But you need to ask those questions to clarify even when you think you understand because it's often such a valuable doorway to learning new things and new avenues of the problem that you didn't even realize was there. And I think this is like this is the big shift that people go through when they're learning how to interview from in the very beginning of feeling scared that they're going to say the wrong thing and threatened that their idea may be incomplete or wrong to then realizing that they will discover things and then going into them and being excited for finding out when they're wrong and excited to discover some new angle and perspective on this that they didn't know before and I experienced this myself when I learned how to interview, and it's 
it's so amazing to watch people go through that transformation who I have helped start interviewing as well. And they and just go from kind of scared and, and nervous to being like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell you what I learned. Very cool. You've got a couple items in this list that are things not to do. You say, don't explain anything. <laughs> yeah. And you say, don't negate the person in any way. What, is it, what does it mean to, to not explain things? So this often comes up when you're interviewing someone and let's say you're doing a screen share interview with them. Maybe they're testing a prototype or they're testing a landing page you have. And and they say, oh, why is this button over here? Or this doesn't work, even though it's working as you had built it. There is a very natural tendency, especially as the person who built something, to say, oh, well, what I meant there was actually that you should do this and like this is how it's intended and like this is what I was thinking when I was doing it and you start explaining it and then you're like, and actually if you just click on this thing and then you go over there, then you'll be able to get to it. You can't do it because you're, the whole point is to understand how they experience it. And if you start talking about what you intended or what you think how it should work, then you're turning the interview on yourself and you're not understanding okay, why is it that they expected that button to be somewhere else? And why is it that they missed that menu item? Like, how can I understand where they expected those things to be? Like, is it possible that the process you're solving, you're solving it in a different order than they expected? Or like there's something going on there. And so you can't start explaining yourself, which again is this very natural inclination to defend yourself when you feel like someone is is saying that you built something that's bad, right? Like that is supernatural to feel that way, but you have to check that feeling and say, okay, how can I understand why they think that way? What did they expect to happen? And then with also not negating them, again, you're building this environment of making them feel safe, making them feel like the teacher, removing your own opinions from this. And if you tell them that something they think is wrong, they are going to shut down right away. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's so inaccurate to be kind of coaching a person <laughs> and explaining them through the process of using your product or how they go about their day because you're not there when they're doing this stuff. <laughs> you know, if somebody goes to your website, like, they're not going to have you over their shoulder teaching them how to use it. And so you're totally right. It's completely, I think, it just gives you the wrong idea if you're injecting yourself too much into the interview. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a place for onboarding calls there, there's a place for customer support. Mm-hmm. The interview is not it. So these are all tactics for basically how to conduct yourself when having an interview, how to be empathetic. There's also the question of like, what are you even trying to learn in the interview? You know, why are you talking to customers and like, what do you hope to get out of this? Because even if you get them talking, even if you are validating and you're not interrupting and you're not explaining things and you're mirror, mirroring their words, what is it that you're even listening for and how do you take that information back and like make better decisions as a founder. And I realize this is like a tremendous question. <laughs> this is basically what your whole book is about. But what are the, the sort of broad strokes that we can leave listeners with so that they, they have an edge in their customer interviews going forward and they can like find your book and find out the rest of the story after that? So you can use these tactics to steer the conversation in a direction that is useful for you, that helps you understand, you know, what might be valuable to someone or what might a usable product look like to them in the case of doing a screen share interview. You're not just letting them talk about anything forever, right? If I, you know, to the questions I was saying to you earlier about buying furniture, 
if I had actually been wanting to interview you about sound dampening paneling and why you bought the paneling that you did, it would be pretty irrelevant to ask you about chairs and to let you keep talking about chairs, even though I personally love chairs. And so all of these tactics help you guide the conversation toward that direction that you need it to go in so you can understand what do I need to build? What do I need to do to get more customers to come? Why do people stick around? What like what should my marketing say about what the best customer is for my product? How do I stop churn? How do I see if people can use the thing that I build? Like those are the core problems that the book helps you solve. And all of those tactics help you pull out information that is relevant to those problems that you are having. And so you're not just letting them talk about any old thing. You're getting them to talk about the topics that are relevant to you in a way that makes them feel like they are steering the conversation, which in turn makes them feel open with you, which allows you to understand their process from their perspective and what might cause them to switch products or what might make them stay with a product or why they canceled something. Very cool. Well, listen, Michelle, I think it's an excellent book. I think there's plenty of reason to to read it. I think the cool thing about books like this is there's always going to be some set of subset of people who aren't sure they should talk to customers and they're not sold on that and they're going to do things the wrong way. And there's always going to be some subset of people who are completely sold that they should be doing this and they just need like the definitive guide to do it well. And I think your book is a defense of guys doing it well. And these tactics about empathetic conversations are applicable to pretty much any conversations, even outside of talking to customers. So I hope people read the book. Um, we didn't get as much time to go into your code, your story of geocoding, as much as I would love to, maybe in a future episode. But you've done a lot. I mean, you've been a founder, you've written a book, you've interviewed thousands and thousands of customers yourself. What would your parting advice be for ND hackers who are just getting started? What's one thing you'd want them to take away from your learnings and your journey that might help them on theirs? Don't be afraid to be wrong, I would say. And and follow what you are passionate about. I think people are afraid of being wrong. They're They're afraid that maybe they built the wrong product or they're solving pump something that people don't care about or... That other that that this isn't going to sort of make their dream come true about you know being financially dependent or whatnot. You don't have to stake it all on one thing in the beginning, and it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to change directions. It's okay to pivot. It's okay to make changes. It's okay for other people to introduce ideas to you, but keep following that thing that you're passionate about, whatever it is, and be open to what other people are saying. But let yourself be wrong. It's okay. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Michelle Hansen, thanks so much for coming on the Indie Hackers podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people go to find your book, Deploy Empathy? And where they where can they go to find other things you're working on online as well? So Deploy Empathy, the, the print version is available from Amazon. Uh, you can find other versions available from the book's website, deployempathy.com. You can also sign up for the Deploy Empathy newsletter there um you can also you can still see all of the rough drafts because i wrote the book in public as a newsletter you can see them all there you can also find me on twitter 
at MJW Hansen. And of course, I have my my own uh, weekly podcast that I co-host with Colleen Stetler called Software Social. All right. Thanks again, Michelle.